Santiago, Chile, September 1973. A mass rally in support of President Salvador Allende gathers in the capital city of Chile. For the three years since his election, the head of state has attempted to guide the nation onto a democratic path to socialism. It hasn't been easy. Extensive land reform, housing and welfare programs, and nationalization of key industries have won him the support of Chile's lower classes. But grinding strikes from small business owners and white-collar workers have disrupted society, and a campaign of economic sabotage from within and without the country has led to shortages of goods. The crowd gathered here are Allende's supporters, typically working class, chanting out a slogan that was made popular during the early 1970s in Chile, El Pueblo Unido. Hamas será vencido. The people united will never be defeated. But this slogan of political triumph would soon turn into one of resistance. In one week from this rally, the government will fall, and Allende himself will be dead. In his place will rise a repressive military government, led by the Chilean general Augusto Pinochet, the regime would act quickly to mop up any remaining support for the legitimate socialist government, murdering thousands of people in cold blood and torturing and imprisoning hundreds of thousands more. But Pinochet didn't come from nowhere, and Allende's government didn't destabilize on its own. Since the 1970s, Americans and Chileans alike have been met with a broadening stream of evidence that shows powerful forces guiding Chile towards its bloody coup in 1973. And among these forces were the U.S. State Department and the CIA. This is a conspiracy you can believe in. Welcome to Conspiracy You Can Believe In, a show about conspiracies and plots throughout history that may have actually happened. Today is the 20th regular episode of the series, and the final one. I wanted to close the series with an episode about one of the worst crimes of American intelligence and foreign policy during the Cold War, and it's certainly one of the crimes that we have mountains of evidence for. This is the toppling of the Allende government in Chile and the support for the military regime that took its place. For sourcing on this episode, I'm mostly using a book called The Pinochet File by Peter Kornbluh. This was published about 20 years ago by a nonprofit called the National Security Archive. This exists as sort of a watchdog archivist of the U.S. national security sector. 
The book was put together based on thousands of State Department and CIA documents that were declassified around 2000 as part of the prosecution of Augusto Pinochet for mass murder and kidnapping. It's a great resource if you want all of the gritty details on exactly how the U.S. enabled the Pinochet regime, and who exactly was responsible for it. I'm also using the book The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein for some background on the economic crises in Chile and the U.S.'s responsibility for them. First, let's establish some background before we get into the conspiracy part. Chile, in the mid-20th century, like many places in Latin America at the time, was a country with a wide gulf of income inequality. About 60% of the country could be classified as impoverished, while a relatively small middle class and an even smaller elite class had nearly all the access to wealth, comforts of life, and political power. The political parties who supported this status quo, that is, the parties of the right, were typically backed by the U.S. State Department or the CIA, since they were reliable allies against communism in the Cold War. But in the 1960s, under President Kennedy, Washington changed its strategy. Rather than backing the right-wing parties, the CIA and State Department would direct payments to the moderate Christian Democrat Party. The thought was that Chile was in dire need of reforms to placate the poor and working class. If they continued to back the right-wing, it might help create the conditions for a revolution, as happened in Cuba. In 1964, as Chile was due for a presidential election, the CIA directed $2.6 million directly to the campaign fund of the Christian Democrat candidate Eduardo Frey. They also spent over $3 million in a negative propaganda campaign against Frey's socialist challenger, Dr. Salvador Allende. Eduardo Frey won. Now let's talk briefly about the man that Eduardo Frey ran against, Salvador Allende. Allende was the head of the Socialist Party, and by this point he had been its presidential candidate three times. But he wasn't what you'd expect based on who typically voted for the Socialist Party in Chile. He came from the professional middle classes and was trained as a physician. He had a respectable, professorial persona, and he held high office in the country for many years, including as president of the Senate. Allende was a Marxist, and he desired to transform the economy of Chile to develop it towards socialism. But he wanted to do it as part of a mass movement that took power through an election. Chile in 1970 looked a little different from the last time Allende ran for president six years before. Just as the CIA expected, Eduardo Frey would run a moderate to center-left government that didn't veer too far right, and it would enact some pretty sensible reforms, like giving some land to the landless and starting a partial nationalization of Chile's massive copper industry. These reforms were quite popular, but for many working-class Chileans and peasants, they didn't go far enough. Now that people knew that these changes were possible in their country, Allende asked them to think bigger, and promised them even more. It took a few tries for Allende to win the presidency, but the fourth time's a charm. 
1970, he ran again and won a narrow victory in a three-person race. But as soon as Salvador Allende's Popular Unity Coalition won the initial vote, the Nixon administration was secretly planning to stop him from ever taking office. On September 15, 1970, just a little over a week after the votes were counted, President Nixon met at the White House with CIA Director Richard Helms and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger to discuss Chile. Their plan, which they began formulating at this meeting, was to stop the winner of the Chilean election from actually taking office. They had a little over one month to carry it out. The inauguration was on November 4th. And we know that this meeting happened, and what was discussed, because CIA Director Richard Helms took handwritten notes. Those notes still exist to this day and were declassified. Among the scribbles that Richard Helms wrote down were phrases like, One in ten chance, but save Chile. Or, No involvement of embassy. Full-time job. Best men we have. And one ominous phrase, Make the economy scream. Communications between the State Department and the ambassador to Chile, Edward Corey, suggests that an operation like this was in the works for some time, likely for months before Nixon held this meeting on September 5th. Perhaps because of this, analysts in the CIA and State Department were able to quickly put together a detailed analysis of the situation in Chile and deliver their recommendations to the president. In the fall of 1970, U.S. intelligence analysts actually advised the Nixon administration against intervening in the election, arguing, quote, were the overthrow effort to be successful, and even if U.S. participation were to remain covert, which we cannot assure, the United States would become a hostage to the elements we backed in the overthrow. We now know that these were prophetic words. Both CIA analysts and Ambassador Corey's office argued that the U.S. needed to stay the course with its original plan, secretly back the moderate Christian Democrats, and influence Chilean politics that way. They didn't want Allende in office, but a coup had the potential to unleash chaos in the country, for which the United States would ultimately be held responsible. Nixon, Helms, and Kissinger ignored this advice. The administration devised two different plans to halt the inauguration of Salvador Allende, called Track 1 and Track 2. Track 1 was to be the purview of the State Department and the embassy in Chile. The goal of this track was to try to prevent Allende from becoming president with minimal bloodshed through the legislature. You see, since Allende won a plurality but less than 50% of the vote, the election would go to the Chilean Congress for ratification. Now, customarily, the candidate with the most votes usually becomes the president, but since the Christian Democrats were in a king-making position, the United States thought that they could influence the vote. Ambassador Corey requested a slush fund of about $250,000, which he planned to use to bribe members of the Chilean Congress to vote for the right-wing candidate. Jorge Alessandri. Once Alessandri, quote, won the election in the Congress, even though he got fewer votes than Allende, 
he would agree to resign power to a military tribunal, which would then hold a redo election between Allende and Christian Democrat Eduardo Frey. Track 1 was Washington's option to guide the Chilean election without outright military overthrow, except it involved bribery, stealing an election, and then intervening in another one. It had too many moving parts for such a short time period, so it was ultimately scrapped. The Nixon administration focused instead on Track 2. Track 2, also called Operation Fubelt, was the purview of the CIA and intelligence community. Where Track 1 was cautious and complicated, Track 2 was direct and aggressive. Fubelt was a three-pronged attack against the incoming Chilean government, designed to destabilize the country. It relied on, in the planner's own words, economic warfare, political warfare, and psychological warfare. Almost immediately, the Nixon administration began working with major U.S. corporations to shut off business with Chile. Military and aid shipments suddenly stopped. The CIA floated massive payments to El Mercurio, the hard-right daily newspaper of Chile, to spread propaganda blaming the incoming socialist government for the misfortunes. The ultimate goal of Track 2 can be summed up in this cable from CIA HQ to the Santiago station on September 27, 1970. Quote, It is our task to create such a climate climaxing with a solid pretext that will force the military and the president to take some action in the desired direction. The general idea was to create a climate of uncertainty and fear in Chile, an atmosphere so troubling that the military or the organized right would be able to take control. To do this, the CIA armed and enriched some of the worst elements in the country. Task force logs from the CIA at that time show close contact and financial support to a group called Patria y Libertad, an outright fascist paramilitary organization in Chile. A status report from the Santiago CIA station on October 6th proves that the CIA also employed false flag officers, that is, saboteurs hired to carry out acts of terrorism and pin the blame on the political left. One act that the CIA had in mind was removing the Chilean commander-in-chief, General René Schneider. Schneider was not a politician. In fact, that was the core of his government philosophy. He was a constitutionalist. That is, he thought he had no business interfering with the election and would not tolerate a coup. As early as September 1970, the State Department was discussing methods of getting General Schneider out of the way. Ambassador Edward Corey stated, quote, General Schneider would have to be neutralized by displacement if necessary. But under Project Fubelt, a peaceful replacement of the commander-in-chief quickly evolved into something more sinister. On October 8th, the CIA station chief in Santiago discussed kidnapping Schneider with the state police. The false flag agents hired by the CIA also began a plot to kidnap the commander with their pro-coup allies in the Chilean army.
At this time, the center of the pro-coup sentiment in the army was with General Roberto Vio. The CIA first found Vio to be a promising ally, and they supplied him with money to carry out some kind of takeover. But by mid-October, Ambassador Corey relayed his fears to President Nixon that Vio did not have the skills or organization required to carry out a successful coup. And here is where Henry Kissinger claims that he called it off and told the plotters to stand down and ended Project Fubelt. But Kissinger is lying. Shortly after meeting with Ambassador Corey, Kissinger sent a message to VO stating, quote, Preserve your assets. The time will come when you and your friends can do something. You will continue to have our support. He then sent another message to his CIA director in Chile, Thomas Caramassini's, ordering him to hold back on any immediate aggressive actions, but to continue covert pressure, quote, on every weak spot. We know that it isn't just my interpretation that Kissinger was keeping the coup plot alive. Caramassini's passed on these orders to the Santiago station, affirming that the coup was still on, just not the immediate one that General Vio had barely planned. Another plot to kidnap General Schneider was orchestrated on October 17th, this time by the Chilean General Camilo Valenzuela, with assistance from a U.S. military attaché. The plan was to grab Schneider as he was leaving a party for one of his old army buddies on October 19th, and then fly him to Argentina, blame the kidnapping on leftists, and install an emergency military junta. But by chance, Schneider dodged this kidnapping attempt. The operatives that the coup plotters hired had chickened out. Valenzuela asked for more money from the CIA, which he received, and weapons, which he also got, six submachine guns and ammo, delivered directly from the U.S. Embassy. Hours after their delivery, on the morning of October 25th, General Rene Schneider's car was suddenly stopped by a jeep as his driver was taking him to military HQ. Five men surrounded the car one using a sledgehammer to destroy the window in the back. The assailants shot General Schneider three times. The commander-in-chief of the Chilean armed forces was now dead. The CIA would go on to pay the assassins $35,000 to keep the whole messy affair to themselves. The murder of Rene Schneider probably wasn't directly ordered by the CIA, but it's hard to say it could have happened without their influence. The U.S. government washed its hands of any responsibility for the assassination, despite arming and paying the killers, and even helping to organize one of the failed abduction attempts. Even with General Schneider out of the way, Allende was still able to take office. He struck a deal with the Christian Democrats and won the vote in Congress 153-37. to 37. It was official. He was president. And now, it was time for the economic warfare provisions of Track 2 to really kick in. But before we get into that, it's important that we discuss just what it was that Nixon was declaring economic war against. The minutes of the meetings between Nixon and the State Department show that, much like with Lumumba, 
the U.S. government believed Allende was destined to turn Chile into some form of dictatorship. And of course, Allende sought out closer ties to the USSR and other communist nations during his presidency, but things were far more complicated than Nixon appreciated. Salvador Allende was the first Marxist head of state to win an election in a bourgeois democracy. But his government's plans for Chile were not based on a military revolution, but a democratic transition through parliamentary means. And he came to power as part of a coalition of organizations built into one mass movement. There were even some parties on the revolutionary left that opposed him. This wasn't the one-party state that Kissinger or Nixon imagined. Still, Allende had a bold vision to transform the country. And since Chilean presidents at that time could only serve one single six-year term, he had to act fast. Allende built on some of the more moderate reforms from his predecessor, Eduardo Frey. He enacted the most ambitious land reform in the country's history, giving 5.5 million acres of unused land held in speculation to rural campesinos. He nationalized the country's banks, and he raised wages for low-income workers, and he started a massive housing construction campaign for the urban poor, and then established a free allotment of milk for all the country's children. As key industries were expropriated by the state, workers' councils began to act ahead of the government, establishing norms of workplace democracy and pressuring Allende to make even more sectors publicly owned. 91 industries would be nationalized in Allende's first year as president alone. Chile's working class saw their standard of living rise noticeably. Households of once impoverished Chileans, around 60% of the population, would now be able to afford the amenities of modern 20th century living. Families all over the country would own radios, bikes, televisions, and even stoves for the first time in their lives. But perhaps the most popular and the most consequential decision by Allende was to fully nationalize the country's copper industry. This process had been started under President Frey, but it was not a full expropriation of the mines and mills. In July 1971, Allende proposed a complete government takeover of the mostly foreign-owned copper industry with no indemnity paid to the private companies. His reasoning was that they made illegal profit margins off of the natural wealth of Chile, far more than copper companies elsewhere in the world ever made. This expropriation was wildly popular. The motion passed the Chilean Congress unanimously, which means a lot since the legislature was controlled by the opposition. Now I should point out, Copper was and still is a very important part of Chile's economy. In the 1970s, it made up almost 80% of the country's exports. With the nation's most profitable and productive industry in the government's hands, it appeared that Allende's vision of a planned, democratically governed economy was within reach. But the United States government was doing everything in its power to stop that from happening. The Nixon administration declared economic warfare against Chile as soon as Allende was inaugurated. The goal was to destabilize the country 
and ramp up political tensions by imposing crushing economic sanctions on Chile, simply for electing a democratic socialist into office. The U.S. stopped military supplies to Chile, as well as foreign aid, and they coordinated with multinational organizations and right-wing governments throughout Latin America to block export credits and to deny bank loans to the government. The Nixon administration also collaborated with private corporations in the United States to sabotage the economy of Chile. Most famously, he worked with the International Telephone and Telegraph Corporation, better known as ITT. ITT's scheming with the CIA and Nixon in Chile would be revealed to the public in 1972, causing a massive scandal in Chile and in the U.S. Congress. This was one of the many CIA scandals that would inspire the creation of the Church Committee in the Senate in 1975, which uncovered multiple illegal operations executed by the CIA throughout the 1960s and 70s. Documents released in 1972 and in 2000 as part of the Pinochet file showed that ITT was deeply enmeshed in the plot to destabilize the government. The company owned much of Chile's telephone system, which Allende would go on to nationalize. To attempt to neutralize that threat, executives from ITT worked with the CIA to direct funds to the right-wing candidate Jorge Alessandri and to the right-wing newspaper El Mercurio, which spread propaganda against the popular unity government. The CIA and ITT funding is likely the only thing that was keeping El Mercurio alive. Their finances would basically collapse as soon as the intelligence community ceased their payments. As these details began to leak to the American public, government officials like President Gerald Ford and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger insisted that their meddling in Chilean politics was all above board. They weren't trying to topple a democratically elected government. They were merely trying to prevent an authoritarian one from shutting down opposition newspapers and parties. But this was not true. Chile was a multi-party state, and despite warnings from intelligence analysts, Kissinger pressured both Ford and Nixon to take a hard-line approach with Allende. Many intelligence analysts warned that destabilizing Chile's political sphere too much could cause blowback. If evidence piled up that the U.S. was directly intervening to cause chaos in a non-aligned democratic country, it could destroy relationships with other Latin American governments. These analysts preferred a strategy called modus vivendi. This was to quietly fund the Christian Democrats and the Chilean opposition and then wait for the next elections in 1976. Kissinger forcefully disagreed. Just before a meeting with the National Security Council on November 6, 1970, Kissinger told Nixon, quote, It is essential that you make it crystal clear where you stand on this issue. If all concerned do not understand that you want Allende opposed as strongly as we can, the result will be a steady drift toward the modus vivendi approach. In fact, throughout November 1970, Kissinger and Nixon both developed a strategy of harsh, direct intervention to destabilize Chile, but keeping those actions covert. In public, the U.S. would adopt a stern, 
but not overtly hostile posture towards the country. This public strategy would be called cool and correct. These interventions did have the desired effect, at least to a point. Perhaps one of the most devastating tactics of economic sabotage on Chile was Nixon's decision to manipulate the global copper market and to drop the price of the commodity. Since 80% of Chile's exports were copper or copper products, this had a profound effect on their economy. Nixon dumped huge portions of the U.S. strategic reserve of copper into the world market, causing the prices to tumble. Copper production actually increased after Allende's nationalization, and once the price stabilized, Chile's economy was on a more sure footing. But interventions like this did take their toll. It's probably fair to say that Allende had the support of most of the country's poor, but divisions in the country ran deep. The middle and upper classes typically supported the opposition, and they made their views known and felt throughout the country. Throughout 1972 and 1973, strikes from the country's union of truck owners shut down supply chains. Coupled with the economic embargoes on the country, this led to problems with distribution. Lines for food and basic necessities became commonplace. Next, a committee of small business owners and shopkeepers throughout the country also went on strike, along with doctors and a union of white-collar professionals. The CIA denied any involvement with these strikes, but Senate investigations during the 1975 Church Committee concluded that, quote, it is clear that anti-government strikers were actively supported by several of the private sector groups which received CIA funds. Even throughout all the turmoil of the first few years of his presidency, Allende held on. 1972 was one of the first tests of the Popular Unity Coalition, with municipal elections held that year throughout the country. The opposition was still strong, but Popular Unity candidates did better than expected, increasing their share of the vote from the 1970 election. Legislative elections in March of 1973 had a similar result. Although the opposition held control of the Congress, popular unity increased its share of the vote since the last presidential election. Declassified cables from the Santiago CIA station reveal that U.S. intelligence operatives believed the opposition's hold on Congress proved that American covert activities were working. But they also believed they needed to ramp up the pressure if they wanted Allende to fail. On March 14th, the Santiago station cabled CIA HQ to review the midterm elections, stressing the need to focus heavily on relationships with the Chilean armed forces for a resolution. Here's one line from that declassified cable. Quote, Given the outcome of the election results, station feels that creation of a renewed atmosphere of political unrest must be achieved in order to stimulate serious consideration for intervention on part of the military. Although CIA headquarters was initially cautious to support a coup, within a month, the idea had the approval of CIA Director James Schlesinger. The CIA and State Department kept a close eye on their contacts in the Chilean military, worrying that their organization and level of support in the country 
wasn't quite at the point to sustain a successful takeover. In June of 1973, members of the fascist Patria y Libertad organization attempted a coup with some officers of the Chilean army. But this attack was crushed by the Chilean military, who largely remained loyal to the government. The CIA sent agents to Santiago to assess the situation, and they found that once again, what was standing in their way was a constitutionally-minded commander of the Chilean armed forces. This was General Carlos Prats. A smear campaign against General Prats soon appeared in the CIA-funded El Mercurio newspaper, and Prats would be forced to resign. A top-secret report from the Defense Intelligence Agency on August 25, 1973, stated that with the removal of the Commander-in-Chief, their sources in Chile now said, quote, The Army is united behind a coup, and key Santiago regimental commanders have pledged their support. In Chile, a secret committee from each branch of the armed services, plus representatives of far-right civilian organizations, began to plot to take over the government. As their leader, they selected General Augusto Pinochet, who replaced Carlos Prats as commander-in-chief. Their plan was to initiate the coup that September. U.S. intelligence officials were obviously in touch with the plotters as they warned Washington of specific details of the plan, down to the exact date and time that it would start, well before it occurred. The coup began on the morning of September 11, 1973. The Chilean Navy quickly took control of the port city of Valparaiso. In the capital of Santiago, the army attempted to arrest Allende, but he escaped to La Moneda, the presidential palace. As Allende broadcast messages to the workers of Chile to, quote, defend your government from the armed forces, tanks laid siege to the executive building. Jets swarmed La Moneda, launching rocket attacks on the building that killed many of the president's bodyguards. Pinochet's army made offers to Allende throughout the day to allow him and his family to flee the country by plane, but the president refused. It was good that he did, because radio broadcasts of Pinochet from that day reveal that he joked with his subordinates, saying, quote, that plane will never land. By 1.30 p.m., the army began to assault La Moneda Palace. Soon after, President Salvador Allende's body was found, shot dead. Although rumors persisted that he had been assassinated by his own army, most accounts now state that he most likely shot himself, rather than be taken alive and forced to surrender his government to a far-right insurrection. There's no evidence that the CIA directly organized the coup, or that they ordered the military, but they clearly supported it. They set the economic and political conditions for the coup to occur with years of sabotage against the Allende government. And the CIA and State Department even made contingency plans on September 7th to try to bail out the coup plotters just in case their attack failed. But the attack didn't fail. And shortly after Pinochet took control, the killings began in earnest. 
Most, though not all, of the outright murder committed by the Pinochet regime happened in the first year of his rule. This was because the military had overthrown an elected government, and it needed a way to terrorize the population into submitting. About a month after the coup, Pinochet ordered General Sergio Ariano Stark to lead an expedition across the country. A death squad made up of fanatically right-wing officers rounded up prominent supporters of the government in cities and towns across Chile, arresting them and then killing them in gruesome ways. Up to 95 innocent people were killed in what became known as the Caravan of Death. The CIA knew about the Caravan of Death. They described it in cables from the Santiago station as a campaign to, quote, neutralize extremists. But the people killed by the death squads were nonviolent political prisoners. They were typically well-respected members of their communities, or they were civil servants of a democratically elected government. They would not be the only innocent people killed that year. Pinochet also ordered his men to round up thousands of political opponents and suspected Allende supporters into two soccer stadiums, the Chile Stadium and the National Stadium, both in Santiago. These sports venues were used as open-air concentration camps. Their locker rooms and press boxes were repurposed as torture and execution chambers. Just like in the Caravan of Death, most of those tortured or imprisoned or killed were political prisoners who committed no real crime. One of the victims was the folk singer Victor Hara. The Chile Stadium, where he was executed, now carries his name. Some victims were taken to prison camps in remote parts of the country to be detained, tortured, or executed. One of the most feared camps was Colonia Dignidad, a small colony in the Andes run by German exiles that housed many former Nazis. It's difficult to get an exact number, or even an estimate, on how many people Pinochet had killed during this period. I've seen estimates range from 3,000 to 11,000, with more than 200,000 people imprisoned and perhaps up to 40,000 or more tortured. Part of the reason it's hard to get an accurate number of his murder victims is because the Chilean intelligence services and military relied on disappearing their political enemies to frighten and traumatize their families. People would be shot and left in unmarked graves, or have their bodies thrown out of the helicopter into the Pacific Ocean. This left little evidence to document the crime or remains for their families to bury. One of the principal organizations carrying out this slaughter, aside from the military itself, was DINA, the National Intelligence Directorate. DINA was founded just a month or so after the coup as a form of secret police and internal security force headed by Colonel Manuel Contreras. DINA would come to operate as a sort of state within a state, being allowed to operate by their own rules and under their own command structure, which often incorporated some of the paramilitary leaders from fascist organizations, like Patria y Libertad. The directorate was infamous both in Chile and worldwide for its cruelty. 
I won't get into specifics here, but they innovated some pretty sadistic and humiliating torture methods, and they were responsible for countless killings and acts of terrorism. Oh, and I should mention that Manuel Contreras was a longtime CIA asset, and he was even, very briefly, paid directly by the agency. Dina began sharing intelligence with the CIA almost as soon as the organization was set up. Although the majority of Pinochet's victims were the Chileans themselves, many foreigners were also arrested. At least three of the people killed by Pinochet's forces that year were Americans. I'm going to focus on one of them very briefly, a man named Charles Horman. Horman was an idealistic young supporter of Salvador Allende's democratic socialist experiment in Chile. So he moved there with his wife Joyce in the 1970s to start a news and documentary production studio in support of the government. On the day of the coup, September 11, 1973, Charles and Joyce Horman were on vacation in the coastal town of Viña del Mar. Sudden curfews had them stuck in the city, so they looked out for any other Americans in town to tell them what was going on and how they could get back home to Santiago. The first American they met was an engineer with the U.S. Navy named Arthur Crater. He told the Hormans, quote, I'm here with the United States Navy. We came here to do a job, and it's done. The Hormans also spoke with another naval officer, Lieutenant Colonel Patrick Ryan. He directed them to stay in the hotel for a few days, and then he got them transportation back to Santiago. On the 17th, the couple appealed to the embassy for passage out of the country back to the U.S. They were told by the embassy staff that it was, quote, not our job to help them leave. The curfew was closing in on them. Joyce would remain near the embassy, huddled in a doorway to escape getting arrested, while Charles made it home. Soon after he arrived, at around 5 p.m., neighbors saw a truck carrying up to 15 men arrive at his gate, break in, and haul Charles Horman away toward the National Stadium. It would later be revealed by declassification efforts, like the Pinochet file, that Lieutenant Colonel Ryan was likely one of the liaisons between the U.S., and the Chilean coup plotters. He may have even had knowledge that the regime was targeting Charles Horman, but he declined to intervene when he met the couple in Viña del Mar. Joyce Horman reported the arrest of her husband to the consulate and to the embassy, begging some U.S. official to go with her to the stadium to find Charles and demand his release. But Ambassador Nathaniel Davis told her, quote, We really can't do that. If we ask special favors of the ruling forces, everyone else will want them too. That might damage relations with the new government. On September 30th, a Chilean source from inside the national stadium told embassy officials what they likely already knew. Charles Horman had been executed. On October 5th, Charles' father, Ed, arrived in Santiago to join the search for his son. But after about two weeks of combing through hospitals and morgues and getting the runaround from the U.S. Embassy, who repeated lies told to them by the Chilean military, the Hormans finally got the truth. The Embassy admitted in late October 
that Charles was dead. As a final indignity, after Ed and Joyce returned to the U.S., the State Department harassed them repeatedly to pay a $900 bill. The charge was for the repatriation and autopsy of Charles's body. Cases like Charles Horman and much of the other horrifying news from Chile soon began to turn the attention of everyday American voters to the United States' role in the coup. In 1974, Senator Ted Kennedy proposed legislation capping aid to Chile and restricting military supply to the country. This amendment would pass a couple years later. In 1975, a Senate committee led by Frank Church would investigate the issue along with many other scandals involving the CIA. Public opinion began to turn on the intelligence agency, and it started to become a commonplace liberal belief that the CIA should be outright abolished. The CIA and State Department tried to control the damage through overt and covert means. The agency collaborated with the junta to finance a public relations campaign in 1974. They also bolstered the finances of El Mercurio, the right-wing national paper, to serve as a propaganda organ for the government. In meetings with staff, Kissinger shot down any attempt at moderating the State Department's position in Chile, adamant that the junta needed the full backing of the United States. Even when Kissinger visited Chile in 1976, ostensibly to deliver statements condemning the regime for its human rights abuses, Kissinger privately met with Pinochet to reassure him he was only forced to do so because of pressure from Congress. The record of this conversation was declassified in 1999. We are sympathetic with what you're trying to do here, Kissinger told Pinochet. We want to help, not undermine you. You did a great service to the West in overthrowing Allende. United States collaboration with the Pinochet regime went well beyond the executive branch. At the University of Chicago, the free market libertarian economist Milton Friedman had been training many young economists from Chile who adopted his pro-capitalist views. These neoliberal economists came to be called the Chicago Boys. They and their mentor, Milton Friedman, shared a deep anti-communism with Pinochet, even if some of them occasionally criticized the human rights abuses, they collaborated to restructure the economy of Chile immediately after the coup, mostly by blowing the economy up. After receiving grants from CIA-funded institutions in Chile, the Chicago boys devised a policy of shock therapy. This was ripping off the band-aid of the welfare state to control inflation and allow what they thought would be free market competition. Almost overnight, price controls on necessities like food or housing disappeared, wages collapsed, and public sector industries were returned to private hands. Unexpectedly, unemployment skyrocketed, almost to 40% in some sectors of the economy. Malnutrition rose drastically, and the working class of Chile saw their standard of living noticeably decline. But to top it all off, the Chicago boys didn't even get a handle on inflation either. You see, Chile had a long history of an almost oligarchic control of key industries. Just a few well-connected families 
owned huge vertically integrated business empires. So removing price controls from the hands of the government made price setting the responsibility of a few monopolies. By the end of 1975, after all that shock therapy, inflation in Chile rose to 341%. Consumer spending stagnated, and the GDP contracted by almost 15% that year. Because the relatively tiny Chilean upper class made off like bandits, and a few private monopolies increased their profit margins until the economy collapsed again in 1982, this is sometimes touted as an economic miracle. But Pinochet's regime didn't just wreck its own country. It sought to extend its reach throughout Latin America and beyond. In November 1975, the director of Chile's feared DINA, Manuel Contreras, convened the first meeting of an organization that would come to be known as Condor. Operation Condor was a novel concept. It was sort of an anti-communist international. The idea was to form a cooperative secret police network among the right-wing dictatorships of Latin America. Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Paraguay, Bolivia, and Brazil would all become Condor members. Officially, Condor's mission would be to carry out security measures against left-wing insurgency. But in reality, Condor was an international terrorist organization. Its agents, many of them either members of South American intelligence services or of far-right civilian organizations, would go on to kidnap, torture, or assassinate thousands of dissidents, and not just in Latin America. Some of the high-profile Condor missions in the 70s were attacks on civilian opposition leaders in Europe or in the United States. Condor probably could not have developed so broad a reach of their terrorist activities without some assistance from the United States. The CIA, thanks in large part to their sources and connections with DINA in Chile, had detailed knowledge of Condor's organization and their operations. Occasionally, the CIA would intervene if they felt that Condor was getting too brazen in their attacks, but not always. And although the initiative and leadership behind Condor was mostly in Chile or Argentina, they received both tacit and overt support from U.S. intelligence and the State Department. For instance, in 1978, an official in Paraguay informed U.S. Ambassador Robert White that Condor had been using an American communications base as their information hub. In a cable from that year, Ambassador White wrote the Condor operatives would, quote, keep in touch with one another through a U.S. communications installation in the Panama Canal Zone. This U.S. communications facility is also employed to coordinate intelligence information among Southern Cone countries. They maintain the confidentiality of their communications through the U.S. facility in Panama by using bilateral codes. Ambassador White went on to say that he couldn't verify this information. And while we don't know for sure if what that Paraguayan official told him was true, it would help explain how Condor terrorists were able to travel almost undetected between three continents. Perhaps the most shocking attack carried out by Condor agents at least for people in the U.S., was the assassination of Orlando Letelier and Ronnie Moffat 
which took place in the heart of Washington, D.C. Orlando Letelier was at one time an economist and the foreign minister who worked in the Allende government. After the coup, he was imprisoned and then released under international pressure, where he escaped to the United States. There, he worked for the progressive think tank Institute for Policy Studies. Even though no reasonable person could classify a D.C. policy wonk at a left-wing think tank as an armed terrorist, Condor put a target on Letelier's back. One of the killers selected for the mission was, ironically, an American, a man named Michael Townley. Townley had grown up in Chile after his auto-executive father moved there for work. During the Allende years, Townley had become a member of Patria y Libertad, that neo-fascist paramilitary group, and he developed a reputation for being good with explosives. As a hitman for Condor, he carried out the murder of Carlos Prats, the former general who prevented the first coup attempt against Allende, as well as killing his wife. Townley planted a bomb in the couple's car in Buenos Aires, and he killed them both. Now, he was being directed to kill another non-combatant living in exile. But first, the assassin would have to reach the United States. Townley and an accomplice first attempted to enter the U.S. via Paraguay, using fraudulent passports under assumed names. The president of Paraguay, also a Condor member, put pressure on U.S. Ambassador George Landau to approve the visas for the men, claiming that they were acting under protection of the CIA. Landau had no idea if this was true, but he also didn't want to intervene in an intelligence operation. So he issued Townley and his accomplice the visas, and he sent copies to the CIA for verification on July 27, 1976. About a week later, Landau heard back from the CIA official he contacted that they had no knowledge of these Chilean operatives. Alarmed, Ambassador Landau contacted the State Department and warned them about two Chileans using false visas trying to enter the country. Landau now had orders to stop them, but the assassins had already left for Chile. From there, they would fly directly to Washington under new false identities. They would arrive on September 9th. It had now been almost a month and a half since the CIA and State Department got wind of Chilean agents attempting to enter the United States, but nobody seemed in any hurry to catch them. After casing Orlando Letelier's movements for several days, Michael Townley met with members of a right-wing Cuban exile group called the Cuban Nationalist Movement. Together, these groups planned the murder. Townley planted a remote-control explosive under the driver's side of Letelier's car. On the morning of September 21, 1976, Condor agents followed the vehicle, and as it made its way past the Chilean ambassador's residence on Sheridan Circle, they detonated the device. Letelier was killed in the blast, along with his colleague from the Institute for Policy Studies, Ronnie Moffat. This act of terror, right in front of foreign embassies in the nation's capital, horrified many lawmakers in the U.S. The Letelier and Moffat assassinations would sour U.S. and Chilean relations for some time, 
even as the United States continued to collaborate with the Pinochet regime. These murders would spark investigations and requests for extradition from the U.S. When those were denied by Chile, President Jimmy Carter would impose some moderate sanctions on trade and military aid to the country. But these sanctions would be lifted almost as soon as Ronald Reagan came into office in 1981. And that same year, the Kennedy Amendment, which restricted military collaboration with Chile, was repealed. The Chilean secret police setting off car bombs in the streets of D.C. seemed to have little effect on actual policy towards that country. In fact, Reagan himself began to repeat baseless conspiracy theories, entertaining the idea that Letelier was actually killed by leftists as part of a false flag operation. In fact, this story was a lie that was purposefully spread by Pinochet's government. On the floor of the Senate in 1981, during the debate to repeal the Kennedy Amendment, Jesse Helms even accused Letelier of having it coming. He called Letelier, quote, an agent of terrorism, and said of his death, quote, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Statements like these are sickening, but they're not surprising especially when you consider that some officials in the U.S. intelligence services and the State Department were probably complicit in the Letelier Moffat assassination. Some of the documents revealed by the Pinochet file show communications between Secretary of State Kissinger and embassies in Condor member states that suggest this was the case. You see, in August of 1976, a secret memo from State Department official Harry Schlaudemann went out to the U.S. Embassy in Uruguay, directing them to start intervening in some nefarious plot that was being carried out by Condor nations. One passage of this memo read, quote, What we are trying to head off is a series of international murders that could do serious damage to the international status and reputation of the countries involved. This memo clearly referred to upcoming assassination plots, but the ambassador in Uruguay had been hesitant to raise the issue with the government there, out of fears for his safety. But this memo was ordering him to find a way to pressure the regime. Schlaudemann also sent the memo to Kissinger, who didn't respond for about two weeks. And then suddenly, on September 15, 1976, Kissinger did. He dictated orders to the embassy in Uruguay and ordered, quote, that no further action be taken on this matter. On this order, the State Department dropped the pressure on Condor to halt the assassination plots. Letelier and Moffat would be killed less than a week later. Despite the hesitation among American politicians, especially among Republicans, to hold Pinochet responsible, the relationship between the military regime and Washington would begin to crumble in the 1980s. As documents declassified in the late 90s would prove, Pinochet ordered many of Condor's assassinations directly, including the Letelier bombing. But the Chilean government did everything it could to shift the blame, including conjuring a narrative that the bombing in D.C. was a false flag event carried out entirely by the CIA. After Chile's second economic crash under Pinochet in late 1982, 
it was becoming clear to Washington that the junta was just not going to last very long. Even the ultra-conservative Reagan administration had to waver in its support for the increasingly unpopular Pinochet government. The Reagan administration's concerns, however, seemed to be less directed toward human rights abuses and more focused on the possibility that Pinochet's harsh rule could provoke a communist uprising. Reagan's State Department spent much of the mid-80s attempting to moderate the Pinochet regime, even after they lifted sanctions on the country. But in 1986, members of the Chilean military murdered a teenager, Rodrigo Rojas, by beating him and burning him alive in response to a street demonstration. Rojas was born in Chile, but he was raised in Washington, D.C. His family had fled the country after the coup, but he returned to document the resistance. This killing caused a diplomatic incident that could not be ignored. The U.S. intelligence community and the State Department once cleared the way for Pinochet to come to power. But now, he was a liability. Assistant Secretary Elliot Abrams, known as a right-wing cold warrior, began making threatening statements to the Pinochet regime on national TV. Abrams told Ted Koppel in a 1986 episode of Nightline, quote, I think there are very good grounds to be skeptical that Pinochet wants any kind of a transition. We don't want to see it happen in the next millennium. We would like to see it happen sooner than that. Ironically, the CIA and State Department began a repeat of their old modus vivendi strategy, funneling money to moderate parties like the Christian Democrats, but this time against a government they helped install. The constitution established by the military government in 1980 called for a referendum in eight years. In 1988, the country would be allowed to vote yes to keep Pinochet in command or no to transition back to a liberal democracy. The United States was committed to influencing the Chilean opposition as much they could, sending money for voter registration and PR consultants through National Endowment for Democracy funds. Their goal was to benefit a coalition of more mainstream liberal parties. Remember, the Reagan administration feared a left-wing insurrection more than anything. Pinochet called this meddling, quote, Yankee imperialism. But the CIA soon found out that he had a secret plan to overturn the referendum if it didn't go his way. If the election was close, he planned to overcome the no votes by fraud. If no was a clear winner early in the count, he planned to stop counting ballots and use military force and terrorism to halt the election results. On the day of the referendum, in October 1988, the government let news of the vote leak out in a slow drip that made it appear that yes was winning. But everyone knew no was ahead. Chileans crowded in the streets to demonstrate, and the state police didn't bother to stop them. Soon, realizing that they couldn't hold up the ruse any longer, high-ranking officials in the junta publicly announced that no had won, and Chile would end its military dictatorship. After elections the following year, Patricio Elwin of the Christian Democrat Party would be sworn in as president. Pinochet still held high office in the military, and he was to appear on stage with the new president. 
On the way to the inauguration, the people of Santiago pelted General Pinochet's open car with eggs and rotten vegetables as it passed. Pinochet would continue to live as a free and influential man in Chile until he went on a visit to London in 1998. While he was there, he was put under arrest by Interpol agents on charges of genocide, torture, and kidnapping. Tax evasion and money laundering on a massive scale would soon be added to his charges. A legal loophole in Spain allowed for people guilty of crimes against humanity anywhere in the world to be tried in that country. And the Spanish court's attempt to bring Pinochet to justice would span almost a decade. The legal battle forced the United States to declassify thousands of records related to Chile, which the Pinochet file published in a digest. The world now had a much more focused view of what happened in Chile in 1973, who was responsible, and how the military regime was brought into power. Pinochet, however, would escape justice. He died at age 91 in 2006 shortly before he could be convicted. Pinochet was denied the honor of a state funeral in Chile, but the military and the leaders of the country's far right paid their respects in a ceremony by the glass-covered open coffin of the former dictator. One man would wait in line for hours to view the body. This was Francisco Cuadrado Prats, the grandson of Allende's commander-in-chief who Pinochet had murdered by a car bomb. After waiting in line for hours to view the casket, Francisco held his head over the glass-covered, bloated face of the dead general and spat on it. Pinochet is now, thankfully, long dead. But the effects of his rule can still be felt today. For one, we will never know where Allende's experiment with the democratic road to socialism would have gone. It was destabilized by Washington and then annihilated by the military just as soon as it began to show results. And Chile is today still plagued by extremes of poverty and hoarding of wealth. It remains one of the most unequal countries in terms of wealth in the industrialized world. Much of that is thanks to the Chicago Boys, who had some influence on the Pinochet-era 1980 Constitution. This Constitution is still in effect in the country today, and it extends an unprecedented level of control of resources to private individuals and companies. Chile is the only place in the world where private property rights over water itself are enshrined in its Constitution. At the time of this recording, the Constitution is in the process of being rewritten and brought to the country for a referendum. I have no idea how that will go, but it's clear that the terror, violence, and destruction of the Pinochet regime damaged Chile for decades, even after the junta was deposed. The country is still picking up the pieces after years of torture, mass murder, terrorism, and economic devastation. And the people of the United States owe it to the Chilean people and to ourselves to know what role our government played in it. 
This has been Conspiracy You Can Believe In. As you might know if you listened to my previous episode, this will be the last one. I've enjoyed writing and recording these shows for about the past two years or so, but I've started a new job and I'm raising a three-year-old. Lately, I have started to feel like the podcast has become less of a fun hobby and more of a deadline. So I wanted to quit while I was ahead, rather than just let the show fizzle out. And I figured 20 full episodes was a nice round number to stop on. Now, if you've listened since the beginning, thank you. If you ever gave the show a donation, I deeply appreciate it. And if somehow you're listening to this for the first time, I'm sorry there won't be more, but there's a nice catalog you can go back to and enjoy. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.